is Lauren, and I am this year's host of Calvin's Startups Beyond Ethical podcast. Today, we welcome on the show Dr. Reba Bohr. Dr. Bohr is the former CEO of All On, a fund set up by Shell to invest in renewable energy companies in Nigeria. Many of these companies are local entrepreneurs who are finding homegrown solutions to Nigeria's power problem. Dr. Bohr recently left All On to become the president here at Calvin, and I'm excited to share his story today. Dr. Bohr, welcome. Thank you for having me. So as we start out this afternoon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Yeah, it's a bit complicated. I am from Nigeria. I was born in Jos to Dutch, American, Canadian missionary parents. It was just two parents, but they had all those citizenships. And I spent my upbringing mostly in Nigeria, then came to Calvin College, then did a PhD at Yale, and then I've been all over the place since then. Okay. So a bit of a global citizen. A little bit, yeah. yes. So before coming to Calvin this year, you were the CEO of All On. Can you share how this was started and a little bit of what the mission is? Yeah, so All On was actually, so a lot of people think it was my idea, and I wish it was, but actually Shell set it up, and they allocated $200 million and, and kind of had a plan of, of what they wanted to do with it. And then they hired me to now get it going and, and, and set it up. So it was an investment fund, but I didn't have to fundraise. Okay. That was the upside. The downside is I didn't get any upside. Ah. So, you know, usually if you if you are the one who did the fundraise, when your fund does really well, you make extra money. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I didn't have that opportunity. But it was a it was basically set up because Shell was committed to the sort of the future of energy or new energy. And this was their first foray into doing that in Africa. And they chose Nigeria to do it in because that is their by far biggest market in mm-hmm. Africa. They had been they've been working there since the, the 50s, actually. And so this was partly a gift to Nigeria because they wanted to get this industry going, but also a way for, for Shell itself to kind of test the waters in this emerging new space for them. Okay. And you said this is that was the first place they had been in Africa. Do they, does Shell have a similar market in other regions of the world, or is this a new venture for them? So when we were set up, it was actually set up in 2016, and then I was brought in in 2017 to really get it going. It was really the first for in, in the last sort of 10, 20 years for Shell. They, they had done some of this previously and then shut it all down. But in this kind of new, updated look at alternative forms of energy, it was really the first piece of it. In parallel then to while we were building all on in Nigeria, then they were making a lot of investments in other parts of the world. And now Shell has, you know, multi-billion dollar, well, billions and billions, I mean, they're a massive company, billions and billions of dollars of investments in solar and other renewable energy companies in in the US, all over North America, Europe, Australia, India, East Africa, and then with what we were doing, Nigeria. I'm curious, with Shell being a major oil company, if you could share why they're interested in renewable energy. It seems like two different markets. Right. Well, it's it's actually so Shell and other oil majors or IOCs, international oil companies, most of them are moving in this direction, and they now see that. And they've, they've, many of them have rebranded as not being oil and gas companies, but being energy companies. Mm-hmm. And so there's all kind of different levels or different timelines, but they're all committed to kind of getting as much renewable or alternative forms of energy as possible. Shell's commitment is that by 2050, they'll be net zero, which is quite phenomenal for yeah. a you know, $200 billion oil and gas company with you know billions of barrels of oil and reserves and so on. And, right. you know... I don't know, tens of thousands of petrol stations all over the world. But they look at it as, okay, yes, so that is traditionally what they've been doing for the last 100 years. 
but the future of the world, you know, oil and gas will be a less of a part of the energy mix. And so they are investing now in what that future will look like. And, you know, some of it is solar, some of it is hydro, some of it is wind energy that we're aware of. But then there's a lot of investment in hydrogen, a green hydrogen, and whether that could be sort of the next big energy source. And then there's also R&D going on that I'm probably not even aware of, looking at things that we're not even thinking of, of what might be our energy source in the future. Right. So quite a diversified profile mm, of yeah. what they're investing in energy exactly. wise. Yep. Okay. So before you were at All On, you were at Boston Consulting Group. Can you share what drew your attention toward working in renewable energy? Okay, so good. that's a very good question. So in, in Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, it's one of the top three global management consulting firms. And so they headhunted me from where I was working. I was working for a Nigerian investment company. I mean, they headhunted me to set BCG up in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And then in turn, Shell headhunted me. But the Shell leadership had known me from the previous company I was in because when I was in that company, we were working on an acquisition from Shell, an oil and gas acquisition. Okay. And so when Shell came to me, so, so they came to me not because of my expertise in energy or renewables. It was my expertise in starting up new institutions, new companies in Nigeria, and also my kind of familiarity with impact investing, which is a type of investing where you are specifically seeking and with intentionality, you are seeking both economic and social return and measuring it. And there were very few people in the Shell system that were either entrepreneurial or knew about impact investing. So that's really why I was brought in. On day one, I knew almost nothing about renewable energy. But having previously, even before BCG, I, was, I worked in McKinsey as a consultant earlier in my career. And when you're in a management consulting role, you learn very quickly how to, how to be an expert in a new energy <laughs> in, in a yeah. new sector quite quickly. Yeah. And so obviously I had to do that and use the experience I had with starting up institutions and in impact investing to kind of cover for the fact I didn't know the technical stuff, but I learned it very quickly. Mm. So. Can you describe that process of going from day one knowing nothing to becoming an expert very quickly? What well, does that look like tangibly? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, when I did it in McKinsey, and you you basically, any subject, any sector, they have huge amounts of material, kind of background material, you know, highly synthesized and, you know, very dense, data-driven decks, you know, mm-hmm. PowerPoint decks. So. You study those on, you know, before you even start and then and then supplement that with what you're hearing from people. And you just pick up things very quickly mm-hmm. and pick up the language and the terminology and all that. So when I was starting there, you know, I reached out to my friends in McKinsey and in BCG and said, oh, what do you guys have on renewable energy? What do you have on the energy sector in Africa and Nigeria and all that? And then, you know, use that to kind of educate myself. Um and then you you go to meetings and you don't talk very much and you hear what people are saying and you hear yeah. that you know and you pick it up so that by week two you're already kind of sounding like you know what you're talking about <laughs> by week three you sort of already do know it and by week mm-hmm. four you know you're you're kind of up to speed so that's a pretty fast a, turnaround yeah but but then when I would be in a conversation where it was like the real technical guys then you had to get kind of get quiet again yeah. so but but in the renewable energy space in Nigeria everyone was new in it. And and so we were all kind of learning together, which also helped. Okay. So you, although you were leading all on, right, you had a community of people also in this industry who were learning it with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I asked that because something that John often shares with startups is, is one good place to start when you're, you're looking at starting a business 
is starting something that you also have a problem with. Like what's an area that you are struggling with because you're going to be motivated to solve Mm -hmm. that problem. So often fighting this maybe imposter syndrome of like, I have this problem. I'm not the expert in it but I can see there might be a solution. Right, and Um, then you hire the expertise. Yes, you hire the expertise, you do a lot of listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about impact investing and investing in companies that are already on like the cutting edge of changing energy in Nigeria. Can you give some context for what is the energy situation in Nigeria that Shell is responding to? Okay, so that could be the entire interview actually. So Nigeria has the worst power sector Mm -hmm. in the world. Typically, you have about, in a developing economy, you have about 1,000 megawatts per million people. So Nigeria has 200 million people, so we should have 200,000 megawatts on our grid. We only have 4,000 on a good day. So it's it's 2% of what we need. And so Nigeria has just an abysmal power track record. And so in Nigeria, you actually grow up assuming power will be off half the time, but never knowing when that will be. And so basically, you, you kind of grow up assuming power doesn't work. So here... You know, every time you walk into a room, either the light is already on or you flip a switch and it's on. You never think about what is what is the source of that power, what is the utility that is delivering it, what is the infrastructure they're using. Mm-hmm. You know, none of us know anything about it and we don't need to. But in Nigeria, even a, like a 10-year-old is already almost an electrical engineer because you know what the power source is. You know, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this is our generator. This was a solar panel. This one was from NEPA, what we called the power company. It was Nigeria Electric Power authority, but we called it never expect power again, <laughs> or never enough power available. Oh, NEPA. And, and so it's been normalized that power doesn't work. But in the meantime, Nigerians have become the world's largest consumers of diesel and petrol generators. So there are something like 40 million, let me say 20 million, 20 million and up. The number is, it's who, it, nobody knows the real number, but it's at least 20 million generators that are used every day in Nigeria. And so basically everyone is individually powering their own house, their mm-hmm. own small business, their own office building, their own church, their own petrol station. It's incredibly expensive and inefficient. But they, they say there's about 40,000 megawatts generated through that when only 4,000 are on the grid. So that's 10 times. Mm-hmm. But even with that, we still have almost 100 or more than 150,000 megawatt cap. So it would seem like in that context, in a country like Nigeria, which is in the tropics and has endless amounts of sun, that solar should have already been there and been widespread already decades ago, but it isn't. And so we were now investing in the companies that were starting to introduce it. And many people wonder why solar wouldn't be more widespread already. And there are reasons for that, but it's probably better that I don't (laughs) go into that right now. It's another rabbit hole. That's another rabbit hole, yes. So when you're working with these companies that you're investing Mm -hmm. in, what are the traits that you're looking Mm -hmm. for in a company that that tells you that they're worth investing in. Right. So you never invest in companies. You invest in people. Okay. right? And that's the first thing that any investor will tell you. So the first thing you're looking at is, is this management team a group of people that I can trust and that I can work with and that are willing to learn and be guided? And that that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is, okay, and, and the distant second thing is, okay, is this business model relevant and scalable? And then the third is, okay, is their technology something that actually can work? But the most important thing is, either the, the founder or the founder's team, can you get along with them? Mm-hmm. Because in, it, investing is sort of like, it's, it's, a for, it's sort of a marriage, right? And, and you have to be able to, you know, you end up being on their boards and you take calls from them at two in the morning when something is going wrong mm-hmm. and you, you know, you, you get very close to them and because their success is your success. 
and you got to make sure that the people you invest in are people that you can do that with. Hmm. It's interesting that you say that technology is the third level, mm-hmm. right? It's the people first. Mm-hmm. That's backwards probably than what most people would think with mm-hmm. investing. Mm-hmm. So are these companies, are you seeking them out or are they reaching out to Shell and like looking for investment? Yes. Yeah, so in the early days when nobody knew what All On was and nobody believed that Shell would actually be doing this, we obviously had to do the reaching out. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, once, you know, we started deploying capital, closing deals, announcing it, you know, then it's a new industry. So everybody knew each other and they would refer other companies or so on. And and both Nigerian companies plus companies looking at the Nigerian market, probably within three months of our starting, you know, they would always stop at all on as one of the places people were looking for capital. Because it was a new industry and because we were investing at an early stage, there were very few options for capital anyway, and so they kind of had to come to us. It's the stage that a bank, even in the U.S., a bank wouldn't invest at that point, wouldn't lend. And then most investment funds were looking at either much larger deal sizes or other sectors. And so so that also helped. But then, you know, we were also proactive. So I think the best deal we ever did was a company I found on Twitter hmm. that I just saw them continuously tweet about their solar panel manufacturing plant. And so I reached out and then ended up going to see the plant. I, I frankly didn't believe it was really happening. Went to it, loved it. We put in just a $50,000 angel investment. Two years later, we did a million and a half for them to build a, a much larger factory, which is almost ready for commissioning. And then we did another investment for kind of a $500,000 working capital loan. But that, w- that was unique in that you know, we, we basically just connected on social media. Mm-hmm. Others you meet in conferences or, you know, like I said, referrals, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you share a bit... For listeners who aren't familiar with investing and the nitty-gritty, how does this work from your standpoint of, right, you've shared about assessing the risk of a company that you're investing in. How do you benefit from investing in them? How does a startup benefit from taking investment money rather than generating their own capital? Right. So, you know, a lot of early-stage entrepreneurs are very committed to their own idea and are hesitant to take outside capital, and and then they just want to grow on their own. But the problem is, is then it slows down your ability to scale and grow, Mm -hmm. because you have to basically generate the cash to now reinvest and grow. And that, in an early stage, the amount of cash you're generating is always going to be small. Plus, there's a lot of business models that you actually need a lot of upfront investment before you can start generating cash. And so going to a third-party investor, so usually you go first to what they call friends, families, and friends, family, and fools. These are the people that know you and trust you mm-hmm. and believe in you or maybe just want you to stop bugging them <laughs> and, you know, write you a check for maybe $5,000, yeah. 2000 10 20 and give you that first like twenty to thirty k that you need to just get it going. But then the next stage, you need an angel investor who will, again, give you capital that's hopefully not too with too many requirements, you know, so mm-hmm. that you can still own and operate the company and be relatively free. But usually the angel investor is a type of investor that, is willing to hold your hand and you know except in silicon valley they never really get the value that they put in because it's often like an older entrepreneur who just sees something in you mm-hmm. and believes in you and so sort of like what john is doing like mm-hmm. you commit your money and your time and your time is actually worth way more than the money but it's never monetized and it's more just a passion right and then after the angel investor kind of gets you and and maybe you've given them like 10 percent of your equity and then you take take a bit of debt, but again, you don't want debt too early because are you able to generate the cash flow to right. pay for it? And you don't want it. That can also bankrupt a company very quickly. 
And then the third stage is the growth stage. That's when you get the 500,000, 1 million, 2 million. Again, usually you mix it with a combination of debt and equity. And you got to think about how much how much debt you can take on and how much equity you can give away without losing control and without giving away so much that at the next stage you're not you're still going to have control. And so it's it's always a bit of a there's no it's not really science, it's a bit of a dance. Mm-hmm. And you need to just think about okay, I really need 3 million dollars right now and I can turn this into a 50 million dollar company in a year. If I only get half a million now, it's going to be much slower. So all mm-hmm. of that is things that you just have to take into account and then find the right investor who believes in you but then also gets obviously the investor gets you know at that stage they often get more than what they put in right because by then the the hustle and the sweat and the blood and the tears is the the entrepreneur not you know not as much the the, right. the venture capital person so in the yeah. angel investing there's less return on investment at that stage but the, the investment next of the level. time yeah okay but on the next stage then that that's when it's sort of de-risked but they just need mm-hmm. capital and you have capital so you put it in and then mm-hmm. you know at usually at that stage i mean you're still involved but it's more from a board seat you know it's not that you're spending hours every day and then that's the one that if the company goes from a 3 million dollar to a billion dollar company you know you can get basically retire on that and it sure. was someone else's idea and hustle that you you sure. did that on so <laughs> and i imagine that there's a fair amount of negotiating with each company that you're mm-hmm. investing in yeah right. yeah it is def- it's 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 really doesn't work if you think that you can kind of do the same deal with every every company even if it's you know five mini grid companies solar mini grid companies every one of them it's a completely different deal structure based on what they need and what they what you know their cash flow will be able to manage what they'll be able to pay back mm-hmm. the quality of the management team the quality of their pipeline everything like that so every deal is different and that that's why investing takes a lot of time it's hard work so from seeking out a company or from them seeking mm-hmm. you out to investing in them, mm-hmm. is there a typical timeline or is this different for every company? It's different, but it's it it's never fast. And it's usually it's nine months, six to nine okay. months. It, it's it's like the time it takes to have a baby. Right. You know, and, and even when you have even when you ramp up the size of your deal team, you know, the the, the, the statement is often you you know, nine women can't make a baby in a month. Right. It's still Mm -hmm. it just takes time Mm -hmm. because there's a back and forth and there's a back and forth. And then, you know, something may change in the regulation in the country that you now need to think of. Or there may be a devaluation of the currency or it could be that there's a supply chain issue in China, for example, or the customers that they thought they had, you know, one of them pulled out or suddenly they signed up something new and it got much bigger. You know, so you just never know. Mm -hmm. And so just the back and forth and the back and forth. So it's sort of like date, you're basically dating, right? And then when yeah. you sign the term sheet, you're like you're getting engaged. You're getting yeah. engaged. And then when you finally close the deal, you're married. So it is, it's a courtship. Interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So you were at Shell for, from 2017 mm-hmm. until coming to Calvin. Mm-hmm. So you recently left this kind of work for a very mm-hmm. different kind of work mm-hmm. and then handed off your position. It's not that different. We're still investing in people. Well, that's true. It's the same thing. That's true. Yeah, investing in young people. Yeah. Mm. I, okay. But despite this, you've left your context, yes. right, and handed off maybe a lot of the fruit of your work mm-hmm. to your successor. Can you share how, specific to All On, but also mm-hmm. general, how to leave a company well, how to end well and transition oh. to perhaps a similar kind of work, but a very different context? Right. And how do you hand off something that you yeah. have grown yeah. and put a lot of time and effort and love yeah. into and to leave that? Can you talk yes, about that transition? That's a that's an excellent question. And it's something that's, and it, this is something that, 
my wife Joanna kept saying when we were leaving Nigeria, we need to make sure that we leave well so that we can mm. arrive well mm. in the next place. And so, okay, so I got this new opportunity. You know, one of the hardest parts of accepting this role was knowing that I would have to leave, you know, this portfolio, well, the company that I'd built and then the portfolio that we had built. So, you know, it was an investment company. So, you know, the number of people in all on itself was only 20. But then it's, we had by then invested in 50 companies. Mm -hmm. So essentially I was like, you know, I had 50 children. Right. And each one of them was a different story, was a different, you know, every CEO had a bit of a different personality, a different way of engaging and whatever. But every single one of them, some of them I was like their father figure. Others I was just their like stern uncle. Others, <laughs> you know, I was almost like out there like building stuff with them. And mm -hmm. and so that was that was the hardest part was, you know, okay, if I do this, it means I have to leave this. And so, you know, both Calvin and then, you know, I had to I had to kind of make sure that I had enough time to leave properly and say a proper goodbye and hand over properly. So Shell allowed me to be very much involved in the selection of my successor. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, the successor was basically, for the most part, someone I nominated to, to start with. It wasn't that we posted the role and then got got applications. And I also wanted to make sure that my successor was an African woman. So I rigged it by having all the six finalists were African women. Mm -hmm. So the the only outcome would be my successor would be an African sure. woman. And so, you know, we went through the process, you know, I was part of the interview process, part of the selection process, and then eventually the board chair and the selection committee and I then picked the successor. Um, but then because she was, she now had to leave the Rockefeller Foundation where she was based to come when I left, I had I handed over to my investment manager, who was someone that had been the investment manager for three years. He'd been in Shell for 15 years before that. We had built an incredibly good rapport. And so I knew that everything was in good hands and that he also had the same kind of connection and, and sort of, I shouldn't say love, but affection, you know, I would say affection for all of the CEOs mm -hmm. and care, cared for them and their well-being and the growth of, of, of their companies. And so I knew it was in good hands. So I was back in Lagos two weeks ago. I stopped by the office, and it was just great to see. You know, they've closed a few more deals. You know, we talked about some of our favorite and least favorite companies and, <laughs> and some of the most difficult ones. Yeah. And, you know, one would be like, oh, Weeba, we finally solved that one problem. Or the CEO is still doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Or this one is, you know, they got some other big investment. We're really excited. You know, so so we're still in touch all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's exciting to see. And I also went to the factory site that's being built. And, again, in spite of supply chain issues, pandemic, everything, they should be able to open the factory by the end of November. You know, and it's it's that itself is a miracle. And remember, yeah. this is someone that we connected with through Twitter yeah. DMs, you know, and now there's a company that, that will be manufacturing 100 megawatts of solar panels a year, which mm -hmm. is actually enough for the entire Nigerian market and most of West Africa. Right. That's very exciting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So on solar power, recently we had solar brought to Calvin. Mm -hmm. Can you share about that process? Right. Okay. So it hasn't been brought yet, but we've signed up. Okay. And basically what it was is as I was planning to come here, you know, w one of the things I, I, I was clear that I was committed to was sustainability because it was mm -hmm. sort of carryover from what I was doing. And so I raised the question, okay, what, where's, what's our power source? Okay. So our power is from consumers and for electricity. And so the first conversation we had was with consumers, and the question was, okay, can we work with you guys to get renewable energy for campus? The model that they have is you would say, okay, we have three, we need three megawatts of power. So then in their kind of next round of, of 
construction, they would now add an additional three megawatts of either solar or wind or hydro mm -hmm. somewhere in the state. And then we would get virtual renewable energy at a premium. So you're paying extra, but you don't actually have any equipment on campus. There's no solar panels. And it's a, you know, it's, so it's virtual. So it, there's nothing to touch and feel. And so even though it was, it was, it was kind of easy to do, we thought, look, this is something that we also want students to be able to kind of experience. And, and there's something about actually having the solar panels, and then you believe, okay, this is really happening. So we found a model. It's actually interesting because it's similar to the business models that we're developing in Nigeria. A company called SunFunded, that their niche is solar for higher institutions of higher, learn higher education. They've also done a few high schools. But what they do is most educational institutions are not for profits. So all of the tax benefits you get from installing a renewable energy system, you don't get because we don't pay taxes. So mm -hmm. where, where does the benefit come? So they do all the investment in the equipment, but then they get the tax benefit and they pass it on to you in savings. Okay. So it's a win-win. Yeah. So basically they, they're the company that we've signed up with and, and they're now in the process of data collection around campus and then identifying w what rooftops, what parking lots, what fields, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to put the panels in based on the, the various needs around campus and, and our power load. And they're also in the process of fundraising. And then, you know, hopefully early next year, we'll start, well, probably after, I guess, after the snow is gone, they'll then start, they'll start installing. So I'm, I'm hoping that by the beginning of the next academic year, we will have the start of solar panels on okay. campus. And the beauty is that it's at no cost to us. So they own the equipment, they paid for it, they're paying for it. And then we're getting, we're now paying for the power that we get at a discount. Okay. So we're getting cheaper power and renewable power. Right. So, seems so it's like a great a win -win. deal. Yeah. Seems like a good deal. Yeah. yeah. Transitioning a little bit. So I've been thinking about the command to Adam in Genesis 2 mm -hmm. to steward and to cultivate the garden. Mm -hmm. How can you share a bit how this might apply to business owners, partners, investors, mentors? Mm -hmm. To say it another way, how do we put our hands to tangible, mm -hmm. earthy work? What we can see, stewarding, whatever it is we are called to but with a view of eternity. Kind of a two-part question there. How do wow. we cultivate and steward what we are called to, which is often very menial and mundane, but with mm -hmm. a view of eternity? Okay. That's a really deep question. Okay, so think, think on it for a minute. So, okay, so the, the, what, you're, what you're referring to is the cultural mandate, which mm -hmm. is actually the first commandment in the Bible, mm -hmm. right? And maybe this is controversial in some circles, but this is why I, it blows my mind that you'll have Christians who will say we shouldn't care about climate change, we shouldn't care about the environment because it is the first commandment in the Bible. And so as a business owner, you always need to think about what is the impact of your business going to be on our planet and our people. And that's kind of where the impact investing movement evolved from was this idea of, okay, when you're investing, it initially started as let's at least do no harm. And then it, and, and so, okay, let's avoid creating environmental problems by what we're doing, or let's avoid creating poverty by mm -hmm. the business that we're in. And it switched then, and that was kind of the the negative screening, a bit of the ESG movement, that kind of thing. And then Impact Investing said, let's actually flip it around and let's use the power of private capital to not only avoid doing that, but to actually create a positive impact on the environment or a positive impact on poverty. And that's actually what made the movement so revolutionary. And it suddenly made it that billions of dollars of philanthropic capital that was kind of just being given away mm 
mm-hmm. was now being deployed to entrepreneurs who could then generate additional capital from that and actually grow it. But then it also attracted investors who init- who previously were only focused on financial return to think twice and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to deploy capital in a way that maybe I'll get a slightly lower return, but not always. And I'm going to, because I want this positive social and environmental impact. I heard, I was on a flight two weeks ago on, and on CNBC, I heard that the only asset class through the current sort of economic uncertainty we're seeing in the U.S. in particular, the only asset class that's actually growing is impact investing. Hmm. So it's evolved from being this sort of niche thing. First, it was avoid, uh, do no harm. And now it's create positive value. It's also now the only one making money. Hmm. So I think it shows you what, and and essentially impact investing is biblical principles of investing. And so here at the business school, we kind of need to claim it back. And, and show everybody out there who's doing impact investing that, you know, this is actually not a secular thing. It's mm. a bit, it's a, it's a biblical. Um, and again, think about that in every business you do. And, and it just means you have to think a little harder about that because, you know, in the previously you would just start a business and you, that it was just about maximizing shareholder return, but now it's, you know, it's so even major corporations that are obligated on shareholder return, their own shareholders are now saying, what about this? And mm-hmm. and so it's it's really transformational. So the cultural mandate is now a key part of investing, and it's trillions of dollars are being deployed this way. So it's absolutely exciting. But again, we need to claim it back. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't really answer your question, but I kind of did. Yeah. No, it's okay. good. It's good. All right. Closing question. You can make this answer related to business or mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. But something that I like asking people at the end is what is one discipline that you practice regularly that feeds your soul? And then secondary to that, how would you advise students in this? Okay, your, your soul can be fed in different ways. So mm-hmm. like my... So the spiritual discipline, yeah. a rhythm of rest in your week. Okay, got it. Okay, broad. it's music. Okay. Music, yeah. At, 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 yeah, at heart, I'm a musician. And I think I, I, music speaks to me more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so people might sometimes see me around campus, like I'm in some corner, like with headphones on yeah. dancing. So just, <laughs> I'm not going crazy. Okay, <laughs> there's I'm music con- going I'm, on. I'm yeah. connecting with my soul. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So any certain type genre? Well, right now my favorite is Afrobeats. Okay. It's it's the Nigerian music style that's kind of taken over the world of music, but uh, it's pretty eclectic. So soca from Trinidad. I love reggae. I, I also I. Sometimes you just can't beat like a good old 80s rock song. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's pretty eclectic, but right now it's mm. it's heavily Afrobeats. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, folks. This has been Dr. Bohr with All On. Thank you for listening and thank you Dr. Bohr for sharing your story with us. Thank you. And it's Dr. Bohr now with Calvin, not with All On. Yes. Yes. All right. I'm your host Lauren and we will see you next time.